Fog DAO is a group of builders and investors bringing you the best content on how new technologies can be used to make better games. Enjoy the show. GM friends, and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly Fog Casts. We are recording this on the 9th of December. We've got Philip Collins, we've got myself, Nico Vreke, and a special guest, Sebastian or Seb Park, uh, calling in from uh, New York. Seb, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Also, thanks for having a reasonable hour. I've, <laughs> I've heard the other hours you record at, and yeah. I, I'm as much as I love you, man, I'm not waking up at 2 a.m. <laughs> okay, I, I get that. Um, and so today, um, we're going to abuse Seb, and we're going to talk about UGC because that's what he knows uh, pretty much everything about. And because it's topical, we're also going to discuss Activision and Microsoft and everything that's happening there. Um, and yeah, just have a chat. So let's start with the Activision Microsoft news. Phil, what can give you give us as background to, to kick off the conversation? Yeah, I mean, high level. Microsoft announced the the prospective acquisition of Activision the beginning of 2022, kind of kicked off the year with a bang alongside Take-Two and, and Zynga and, and all the, the craziness on the content consolidation side. Since then, it seems like it's been in, in the legal process and everyone's just been waiting to see what happens in that, especially from a regulatory perspective, given this is a you know record-breaking, almost $69 billion deal for the, for the gaming industry. It's been a little bit quiet, honestly, over the last 11 months as, as things have just been been sorted out on their ends. But yesterday, first big news in a while uh, was that the FTC said that they will they will be suing to to potentially block the acquisition. Um, and that's pretty much where we're at now. So as a non-US citizen, um, I'm not sure like what exactly that means. Does that mean that it's not going to go through or does that mean that there, there's a, just a chance that it doesn't go through? It means they'll be evaluating it. Um, it's kind of in like the, the antitrust, anti-competitive space. We've seen this plenty here in the U.S. recently as well on the Apple and Epic side. But they'll they'll evaluate it. So it's not a signal that it will or won't go through. It's kind of a hey, we're taking a deeper look at this and actually going to spend some time determining if it should be be approved or should be legal in in the eyes of the the U.S. government. Yeah, and and Nico, if, if and anyone who's listening, if you really want to take a look, the it's not that different from the European Commission or the British Commission. the The biggest difference is in the states. We typically have the FTC sue um, in a in order to bring it to the courts in order to argue the case, as opposed to the European Commission, which evaluates it themselves and rules. In some sense, that provides more transparency. In other senses, it drags it out, but. On the bright side, it, it's a very clear announcement of something that's going to happen as opposed to an announcement of an announcement, which is something you get used to, I suppose, and with mm. the European Commission. And so what are, did the expectations change? Like, are we looking at this deal differently from a week ago? I mean, just from my perspective, no. The answer is that the deal is exactly the same as it was a week ago. Now, the question is... Who is, and this is where it gets a little bit more like geopolitical and, and so, um, socioeconomic, which is like, how do you evaluate the bright line for anti competitive or antitrust, right? The answer is that it really depends. Uh, I, I think my favorite example personally happened a few months ago with. Uh, the Brits, uh, the the UK ruled that Meta's acquisition of Giphy was anti-competitive, uh, which super strange, <laughs> honestly, from the perspective of do we really consider the cohort of gifts to be a competitive space? 
And if so, like does the acquisition by Facebook of Giphy, um, which happened you know, a few years ago, count as an antitrust matter? Or was it more of a political shot at Meta as a whole, right? And I think in this regard, I think it'd be hard to argue from my perspective, and obviously I'm biased just from being on the game side, that Activision Blizzard has anything that resembles a monopoly on gaming. Like the best way you can approximate it is if you had a very low level understanding of total market value of, <laughs> or, or just even the addressable value market of gaming. If you thought it was only 100 billion, then yeah, like 70 billion seems pretty freaking high. It's like, oh, you must be acquiring 70%. But that'd be a very low level analysis, I'd imagine. You can read their redacted complaint, but the problem with the redacted complaint is that it's redacted. <laughs> uh, it's in part because like the things that are interesting in the redaction that you'd want to see is the actual dollar values held. It would be interesting if it was actually the case that Call of Duty did make like something like 90% of all revenues. If that's the case, then suddenly, well, actually, there's somewhat of an interesting case here. But because of obviously being protective of Activision's like business case, uh, they redacted all the fund numbers <laughs> in the complaint. And so we're unfortunately not privy to why they made the case. So from the perspective of the public, it's exactly the same as it's always been, which is, hey, we understand, like they basically say the gaming global revenue ecosystem is worth 170 billion. They're almost certainly arguing that Activision Blizzard accounts for some large percentage of those billions and that Microsoft accounts for a large percentage of those billions. And so combined, they'd be like a massive part of those billions. But unlike in other anti-competitive antitrust situations, this is one where I think generally speaking, most gaming ecosystem players, with the exception of maybe Nintendo and Sony are like, yeah, no, this is great. Please let large tech companies acquire game companies. This is like actually one of the few ways that gaming venture works. (laughs) So please, 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 please let this happen. And so it creates some very strange incentives. Uh, And so we'll see how they evaluate it, Uh, whether it's that or the console war or some other mechanism that they judge the the ecosystem by, it's going to be really interesting to see if they do rule that's anti-competitive. Because that, I think, will have like large reverberations where as the market's pretty much priced in the idea that this is going to go through. Yeah, and this is also a kind of a theme we've been seeing with the, the FTC here in the U.S. recently. And I think ever since the relatively new uh, chair took place, it's been more of like a trust-busting mentality here. And even within gaming, we've seen it with smaller acquisitions. And one of the best examples is Meta trying to buy within for, I think, 300-ish million dollars um, because that is a VR fitness app and Meta seems to be taking over the, the VR space, uh, even a small acquisition. And that's you know relatively small dollars when you compare it to the broader efforts at Meta and a pretty niche and honestly unadopted game um, and developer. It's, it's very clear that that's the mentality right now. And so it always felt like the review of the deal was inevitable. It doesn't mean that blocking it is inevitable, but it, it, it felt like given what's happening on the content consolidation side of, of the industry and the fact that Microsoft's able to build up this massive content portfolio for their distribution channel through cloud gaming, it felt a little inevitable, but we'll, we'll see what they actually decide on as they, as they review it. Yeah, and, and not to bring in the like macroeconomic and sociopolitical structures of the world to play, but this is very similar with what's happening in the greater 
economic world, right? There's been a lot of wealth creation in the last three to four years. A lot of the various commissions have skewed in that direction and are like, hey, like this wealth was created. We don't know necessarily why. It wasn't, it's not all crypto, right? And so the question is, how do you address this type of wealth creation that we haven't seen since the 1920s, right? And so uh, another example that I recommend people look into if, if you're interested in learning more about this is there is a company called Lumina, which acquired Grail, which they're med tech companies, right? Uh, for about $7 billion, I want to say in 2020, somewhere in that, in that regard. And it was blocked by the US government. It was unblocked because the suit didn't go through. And then the European Commission stepped in to block it again, right? And so clearly there is an undercurrent here to like both acquire the divest, acquire divest. And especially if you believe that we're entering a negative or downturn of an economic cycle, mergers, acquisitions, and consolidation is going to be a large part of our story in the next two to five years. And so uh, if, if you're interested in gaming, if you're interested in the business of gaming, this is a really important topic to gain some amount of mastery in because it'll provide you some context and also hopefully uh, you know, prove to the world that like gaming is in some bubble. Like We're all interconnected with the forces at play in the world and you, know, you should vote and stuff like that. <laughs> It's been interesting, too, to see how Activision is posturing this and the news that I think was yesterday about how Call of Duty is coming to Nintendo platforms and how just because Microsoft owns the content doesn't mean that they're going to make it exclusive to their hardware distribution channels and talking about how mobile is a big push um, through the acquisition with King and COD Mobile and whatnot. So they've definitely been trying to posture this very much so in, in a way that's favorable to them. And I think they've they've had their defense ready for this moment since the uh, since the beginning and, and how they're communicating it. Yeah, the best case scenario, by the way, for founders is if somehow micro, if, it, if Microsoft starts losing, they're definitely going to drag an Apple and be like, "Hey, they're a monopoly," and then that might be the best case scenario for for app developers everywhere. <laughs> so, how, how long till we know more? How long does it take usually? Oh, great question. Answer is no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Let's see. Thanks for uh, the color, guys. I uh, appreciate it. And then now let's move on to um, to the next topic, I would say our major topic for today. And that is, we like talking about the future of gaming. What part does user-created content play there? Um, and I guess to kick this off, Seb, we haven't really talked about what you do in daily life, what you spend most of your time doing. Perhaps you can give us a bit of a background there and then we can uh, kick off the convo there. Yeah, sure. So I hold... Um, Three major roles in my life. Uh, the first one, which is, and I'll go in least important to most important to me, which is the least important one is I, I sit on a public board. I work with uh, companies entering both user generated gaming as well as esports based ecosystems to help them figure out their strategy. Uh, spoiler alert, it's mostly don't uh, <laughs> for most of these guys in terms of their audiences and what they're trying to go for. Uh, the, the second one is I'm a venture partner at Bitcraft. Um, I work alongside Nico there. I'm focused mostly on user-generated gaming, esports, as well as uh, tooling, uh, as opposed to necessarily content, which would be studio-based investments. And then uh, most importantly, I am the co-founder of Infinite Canvas, which is a user-generated gaming uh, you know, studio publisher, some type of next generation, but mostly like a beta play of like, hey, try and get maximum exposure to user-generated gaming. What's interesting about user-generated gaming right now, which is I think why uh, Nico and I talk a bunch about this kind of stuff, is is we we came out from a slightly different approach in terms of why we thought it mattered um, and it had a lot more to do with the changes to like ATT and ad network services and and sort of the macro of that ecosystem. 
Um, but yeah, so that that's my background in a nutshell. Can you elaborate on the last part? What like be more precise about how ATT changed the way you look at like where the revenues are driven within games and how your like how what your solution for that looks like? Yeah, so let's let's start with some priors, right? So the the most important prior to have is what is user generated anything, right? And user generated anything is when people who are part, members of a community start making products or items in service of that community. So in a lot of ways, fan fiction, I think, is something that people are more familiar with, right? And fan fiction is a function of user-generated content. YouTube is user-generated content. Uh, the stuff that's on Twitch is user-generated content. It's like the transformative nature of creating new stuff. Uh, and occasionally, if you see on platforms like Roblox, the non-transformative IP theft creation of new stuff, right? And so what's really cool about user-generated is that it taps into the human desire to make new things. It exposes larger communal effects onto a game, and it creates more value insofar as you have more content to consume, if you believe in the content funnel idea. One of the biggest changes that goes under-discussed in gaming is what drove people to Web3? And, and this is actually sort of an interesting question, right? Like, if you think about macro incentives, and you, you never see anyone who's super successful in one vertical jumping to another vertical. Like, that's just not a human reaction to success. It's just not something people do. And so one thing that you should look into generally is like, hey, like, if a bunch of people who have traditionally made mobile games are going into Web3 or traditionally made console games are going into mobile. Like that fundamentally means that they probably see the grass is greener somewhere else, which means that there's something wrong in their, in their side of the world, right? The thing that's a commonality across this is that for about seven years from the inception of, I would say, like the machine zone supercell era of like 14, um, pocket gents prior in the 2012, to probably right before the pandemic or through the pandemic in 2020, mid-core and casual-core gaming really exploded to being this like dollar-a-day whale-hunting business that relied heavily on ads and heavily on user-targeted ads. When the App Store changes that Apple implemented, the ATT, or, the, or now their solution to the SK Ad Network 4.0, I think it's the most recent one, happened, it fundamentally shifted the ability for people to acquire users cheaply or in a targeted manner. That's really cool, right? The downside of that is that if you were paying attention to your data, suddenly your cost of acquisition or CAC really went up because of just you know, your CPMs increase, et cetera. And as a function of that, a lot of these games were developed incredibly efficiently. And what I mean by efficiently, and this is the same stuff we saw in the macro like import-export global trade system, where if you have a very efficient system, like a Formula One car, it's pretty fragile. Like if one part goes wrong, it starts to break down, right? And so the philosophy of game development going into 2020 was, hey, if you have a game that has an LTV, a lifetime value per customer of like $2, you are justified in spending something like a buck ninety-five for the acquisition of said person because you get five cents. That's freaking amazing, right? You get five cents, no question, every time. Uh, and so, if you develop a car or a game that's developed on like making a margin of like two and a half percent, and then 
the cost of acquisition goes massively up, suddenly you just have a failing game. Everything's not working. The car is broken. You are Haas or you know McLaren this year versus McLaren and Haas four years ago, right? That is concerning. And how do you solve that? Well, there have been two macro directions that people are going into. One is IP, the creation of new long-form IP. I personally think that's sometimes often BS because IP is really hard to tell if it's working for a five-year period. So it seems like people are just like, oh, we're going to create IP, check back in five years. And the other side was crypto for a while, where people were going into crypto because there's better whale targeting because everything's on chain. You can actually pull interesting information. And if the whales on chain are willing to spend a lot of money, they're going in that direction. But the under-searched for world, and the one that might be a solution to this that's not IP creation or not crypto, was user-generated, uh, or is user-generated, which is content that allows you to improve the LTV of your current game, or act new, new forms of games that are trying to solve for the CAC differently. And so this is something that, Nico, you and I talked about a bunch uh, on the venture side, which is you want to do... Like, when you make investments in the companies, you should think about what the top line total value of, uh, of the market is, the TAM. You should think about like what the risk factors are and how much those risk factors ought devalue or probabilistically change your valuation of the company, right? What's really fun right now is that now that we're entering people's series A's or series B's or the next rounds, the question you have to ask yourself is like, hey, has the total addressable market improved? Or, or have they de-risked the risks going in? And so one of the fun facts about user-generated and venture as gaming venture as a whole, and it's been top of mind to everyone, is trying to understand that interplay of those three things together. So that's sort of the priors that like underline how you should think about user-generated. It's like, hey, is user-generating helping your cost of acquisition? Is it helping your LTV? Is it helping your generation of IP? Or is it helping you become a platform? And that is sort of the five-minute summary of user-generated, at least how I think about it. And so, what actually do you do at Infinite Games? Oh, I, I make games, dude. I like make games, I make content, I like help people who make games and make content, make games and make content. <laughs> that's, that's what I do. <laughs> and you do, do, you do, do you do that on UG user-generated gaming platforms? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think for us in particular, we care mostly not about the platformization or the increase of LTV. Um, and you shouldn't care about those things if you're working on platforms where they take a large cut. And we care more about the user acquisition side, right? We think that like the cost of acquisition is improved, increasing in other places. We have an interesting funnel, be it through content creators or game creators in order to decrease CAC and um, expose people to really fun game loops. And so that is Infinite Canvas in a nutshell. Can you share some some deeper insights there about like how we should think about how that works? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the best example is you probably shouldn't create your own game uh, in most most cases, right? So, like a lot of brands uh, like Walmart go in and create Walmart Land, right? And it's a great PR piece and great uh, press piece. But realistically, like if you integrate into an existing game that has an existing audience, or you have tap into things, you are able to create games and experiences to get you the type of KPIs you want to see while also working in the framework of the game itself, right? And, and access to users. Um, Nico, you and I were talking about this, I think, a couple months ago, where it's like, hey, like, how much of an NFT was people's desire to own something versus a way to pay for access to a community, right? 
And if it's the former, there are probably barriers in terms of like how much you can go up to in value. But if it's community driven, then there's a lot of value to be captured there. And in fact, like my argument is, has always been NFTs are not overvalued um, JPEGs. NFTs are probably a function of people having historically undervalued the value of communities. And so similarly, a lot of these platforms or the way we think about it in terms of insight is like, hey, like what are the communities they drive? How is that valuable? Like the game itself, who cares, right? Like core game loops aren't as difficult as people think they are, right? Like it's like, if it's fun, it's fun, but that's usually a function of time and testing. Um, assuming a, a base level of talent, right? The hard part is getting people who've never tried it to try it. And then getting people who've never tried it to try it is keep trying it and ha- keep having fun. And if there's already an existing game that has that, then suddenly you have some interesting insights there uh, in terms of how to balance those things. You touch upon something that I've been thinking about quite a lot, which is the seemingly increasing importance of community in game design. Um, I recently had a, a chat with a like a th- thought leader. It might be the bad word, a bad word, but someone who knows pretty much everything there is to know about community building, specifically within Web three. But he also does it within Web two, and he told me that one of his quotes was that if League of Legends had twice, like if you made a clone of League of Legends with just twice as many champions, would it be or and like just a bit better or a bit less buggy? Would it be more successful than League of Legends? And the answer, the, the logical answer is no, obviously not, right? Because there is this critical community around League, you know, the, the whole esports scene um, that just holds people there. Um, which made me think more about, you know, what community does for gaming. And, and you know, at, at, at some point, you know, gaming companies will go fundraising their Series A with a, let's say, minimal, bi- minimum viable product, but more a minimal, minimum viable community. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, as you know, I'm 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 more of a consumer investor than a pure games investor. I just happen to love games or working games personally as a founder. Uh, I think that's really important. Like in consumer products, we often see better products that just have worse adoption rates, and that's a form of community. What's really interesting, and I think this is going to be a perhaps a topic for another time, is I've seen a lot of Series A decks recently where they clearly didn't solve for what the risk was. And so I wonder if that's on, on, the, on the investors or on the founders. But like, if you made a game, like if you spent your entire seed round money building a large fucking team, am I allowed to curse, Nico? Um, yeah, you are. Okay, cool. That's, I'm, I'm fucking sorry about cursing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if, if you like spend all your money making a large fucking team, and then on top of that, you made this like cool tech demo in like Unreal or Unity or some type of high-end thing, and you're using that to raise a Series A, like that didn't solve the open questions we had about your round six months ago or 12 months ago. The open questions were, is the game fun? Are people playing? What's your community like? What's the D1, D7, D30? What's, what's like um, paying to non-paying ratios, right? Those are the questions that we had. And in fact, that hasn't been de-risked at all. Like if our risk was that you weren't able to hire engineers to make a, to like program something, then like, man, we should have priced around at like $1 million, right? Like it's like, that's like not the hard part of development of IP or development of anything. It's like, can you get people to play your game? And so I, I've, to your point, Nico, like it's funny to see like minimally viable community may be a better way to explain this to people in consumer and consumer gaming in particular, because if you're coming with 
if you're, people have asked, like, hey, like, why am I not getting traction? Well, partly because you're raising in December and people are on holiday, but partly because like the risk item coming in was just so different than what you thought it was. And I do wonder out loud, since there's a bunch of venture capitalists on this call, like, <laughs> is that on the investors, Phil? Like, is that like, an, is that the investors not providing right guidance, or is that the stubbornness of what people think that they needed from a founder side? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question because I think that I see this a lot with UGC platforms, and this is maybe a separate conversation. But to what you guys are doing, Seb, you're a little bit more platform agnostic, and you're willing to go where the users are. Whereas a lot of what we see on the the early stage venture side is people trying to replicate the platforms themselves because they see so much value there. And so every time I see a pitch deck these days in, in user-generated content platform space, it's basically people trying to show off how their tools for creation are better, the fidelity is better, and like the, the product quality is there. And I think to your point, we've seen that most of the success of UGC to date, at least over the last couple of years, has been on things like Fortnite Creative, GTA RP, and these existing platforms that already have a captive audience. And so I think a lot of times... You, the, to your point, um, we could probably be better about communicating. You know, it's not even just a product quality a question. It's it's how are you getting users to your platform? And if everyone's trying to compete based on product, you know, no one's actually going to be able to successfully do that. Um, you have to have some kind of differentiated hook, and I, I haven't been seeing that too much. And I think over time, as we provide that feedback, hopefully that kind of changes in terms of how people think about it. But I definitely do think that is an, an issue today and how people are trying to to win that market. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to see how people approach it. But it's 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 hard because it's that it's funny because I think a lot of people want trivial, tractable problems to solve. Yeah. But if a problem is is like properly trivial and tractable, then it's already been solved. <laughs> like it's so it's like what's the non-trivial, perhaps intractable problem? Acquiring users right now that is a non-trivial, perhaps intractable problem. Yeah, and so that, that I think is what user-generated gaming is uh, going to come into the forefront of, and and perhaps worth differentiating between these conversations around the word metaverse, uh, which got co-opted by a lot of these platforms. Yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, on the on the UGC side too, I think the initial hook people are trying to go after now, other than the quality of building tools is just having some form of first party IP. Now that we're seeing what's succeeded or what's worked for, for a lot of the, the early players. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the, the next phase of, of people trying to separate themselves is building a good game, getting people to buy in. And then they're actually willing to spend the time building products once there are users there. Cause I mean, people are inherently lazy and no one wants to build a product for a player base of zero. And so there needs to be somebody already there to play the game to make it worthwhile to build the game. And you just see in a lot of ways on that front from the platform side is almost like the epitome of a cold start problem where you have two sides of this of this token and and if neither one are there, then neither one is growing. And so you you need both. Um, but I think starting with the players through IP is is proving from the the large scale examples we've seen to be the the more compelling starting point. And so, Phil, when you're looking at a pitch deck of a team that's building, and like, what are the KPIs you look at for a what we like to call a distribution edge, or at least proof that they've they're gonna find someone to play their game when it's finally out and and you know the, the beta is out or, or the, they have a playable alpha? Yeah, I mean, I think one would just be to see 
like games created per player? Like, do do people want to create on your platform? Um, and I think part of that is a function of the number of players that are already there. And do you have an audience? Um, honestly, I've, uh, the, the one of the more important things I think we've always looked at is is on the retention side. Um, I think that's very telling of of the quality of both the playing and the creation experience. And we've seen some UGC platforms where on a small sample size, they have really good retention. And it's always, it's always interesting to see that um, because clearly people want to play and people want to come back. And at the end of the day, if, if anyone's ever going to prove that Roblox isn't just an anomaly, and I mean, Roblox itself took decade plus to actually catch on, right? It wasn't, it wasn't this like magical platform that everyone immediately gravitated to. Um, I think the ability to keep your early audience there um, is is really telling because a lot of these groups are playing with with pretty small numbers um, and so that'll be that'll be kind of like the first proof point in scaling it out but other than that also really interesting to see the, the conversion from players to creators and creators to players I think that's that's very telling as well and the ratio of how many people are creating how many people are playing um, I think a lot of times ideally in a, in a perfect world at least on the no code side, you know, a lot of people are doing both because creation is part of the play experience and the games are good. So you want to, you want to keep playing there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does, um, what three change this, this view? Cause right now we've talked in general terms, right? Um, is what three enough of a differentiator to spawn a new Roblox? What do you think? Zip? So far, the answer is no. Right, I think that's an unequivocal no, and that's not even being bearish. It's just no platform has shown the ability to retain users at scale. It's not unlikely. even at small scale, right? Not even at small scale, yeah. right? Like it's. I think the yeah. like, and, and it's and it's just unfortunate, right? Like, like candidly, I've spent a bunch of personal time and company time in platforms like Sandbox and the Central Land and stuff like that, and. Effectively, if you think about creation ratios, they're just completely screwed, right? Like, I, uh, one thought that if you think about the history of user generated in general, right? Like, you basically always had, I mean, if you go pre printing press, like creator versus consumer was like one to one, right? Because it was all the like priests who like learned how to read and write and they would always <laughs> write. And then so the content was one to one. But like post printing press, like the ratio got like really large, right? And then at the start of video and, and OTT content, you're talking about like maybe a million to one, like million consumers per creator in the world. Probably in the last five, 10 years with like platforms like Roblox, Fortnite, uh, Creative, YouTube, Twitch. Especially TikTok, that, that ratio has probably like gotten a lot closer, but still ten thousand to one at least, right? Like, I, I like even if you improve like four orders of magnitude, you're still at like ten thousand to one. And if a game platform like let's not throw any of them under the bus, let's throw all of them under the bus, like any Web three platform. I think if you combine the DAU of all user generated platforms on Web three right now, they don't add up to ten thousand. And given that. How the heck are you like that means that the creator ratio is just not there, right? Like if there if there's interesting emergent behavior from creation, you're just not going to see it when there's only like ten thousand people playing in totality. Like that might mean one person has an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think Web3 makes the process of incentivizing and rewarding creators easily and I think easier. And I think that will that will be compelling as people decide to build out content, but I don't necessarily think that is indicative of the adoption of a given platform. Um, I think in general, it's a facilitation tool more than like a pure growth engine. Obviously, those two things can go hand in hand. But yeah, I think 
it'll 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 take some time. Yeah, I, I really like this take a lot better. And you go back before people were hurting, right? Like when they were on their high horse, like six months ago. At which point you could like, I would feel sort of fine saying negative things because it was like, hey, like. I think your platform sucks, but hey, at least you have you know a billion dollars. So like, mm-hmm. what does my opinion matter? I, I think at this point, as people have lost money, and like now it's now the market caps are getting lower and the values are getting lower. It's going to be interesting to see how people think about what their raise amounts are. Like, what are they raising for? What are they raising against? And is there enough? Is there enough uh, capital out there to support people who haven't made progress in the right direction? Um, we're, I think we can see a lot of the ability to say no, right? Just being like, "Hey, like, no, like it's let thing, let projects that deserve to fail fail." <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I'm still so fascinated by you know over the past year we've seen like we've talked about many many like enormous fund raises, not fund raises, but fund raises where it's like you know five hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, and plus. Um, and also we've celebrated fundraises in one word where companies raise funds. Um, but the size of the, the funds are still way bigger than things that have been funded. So it feels to me, but maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to have your thoughts uh, there as well, that there's still a shit ton of capital that needs to be deployed in this space or that is was planned to be deployed in this space. Did the, did the plans change or is there, or am I, am I seeing this wrong? Are you talking Good, about from like a UGC perspective? Just no, like, this is very, very generally in, in like blockchain gaming. Yeah, I mean, I think that the hype around blockchain gaming has definitely inflated certain raise sizes, right? I mean, we've seen on the infrastructure and on the content side, people raising tens or hundreds of million dollars on basically an early stage idea. Um, I think at, at times, I think you can probably pitch that on the content side, groups like Limit Break that have $200 million to play with can be the first real AAA publisher that's that's integrating Web3. And there's a lot of promise of what capital can do for an early stage business idea. And people have been willing to to bet big on that, especially back when when tokens were just kind of up and up and people could could hedge a little bit by by the price appreciation of this this very untraditional equity asset for VCs and a degree of liquidity that we've never seen before. And so I think that was probably priced into some of these these bigger raises where worst case, even with lockups and such, you'd probably flip it relatively quickly for a two, three X and and move on. But um, but yeah, I mean, now that now that things have taken a downturn, there's definitely plenty of capital on the sideline that pretty much has to be allocated over a certain allocation period. And so regardless of 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 what happens next, I think we'll continue to see capital allocated. But I think there'll be a little bit more discipline about around how big a given raise is, especially kind of where all three of us play in the the series A seed and just generally early stage. The. The the concept of dry powder is interesting from a couple of perspectives. Like one, like there are some arguments to be made that all funds that are larger than a certain size will never return enough carry for the fund to be worthwhile. There's some arguments to be made that like, or like that's not even an argument. Like it's certainly the case that the vintage of a fund is demonstrably the most important aspect of the um, fund return profile, right? And so to your first point, if a lot of people raised a lot of funds last year and they started deploying last year, 
it's probably a decent bet that 2022 is going to be a bad fun vintage, right? Like looking forward. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing to evaluate. What I will say is that you should probably group, you know how like you can't group all US and European universities into the same cohort. Like there's a very big difference between Oxford and uh, LA Community College, right? Like there's a big gap in the quality of those institutions. And so if we were to group everyone who graduated both into two, like a normalized study of their exposure to macroeconomic forces, that be inaccurate. The people who are graduating from Oxford have are often from a different socioeconomic class. They often have more resources and they have, uh, for some amount, whatever this is worth, more reputation, prestige as a function of their university degree versus the associate's degree that's given out at LA Community College. Similarly, I think funds fall into this gap, right? There are certainly a bunch of funds that have raised, let's say like a $100 million fund what is the default rate of that fund? I know this is getting into the real minutia of fund dynamics here, but if you raise a $100 million fund at Crypto Bahamas, like back in March of this year, $2 million check size at a time from 50 people you met partying out there because everyone just wanted to deploy capital as an LP. And you probably did one call. You did a call, you called 10% of your capital, you sat on $10 million, you took your $2 million management fee, you deployed maybe three checks this year for 500K, not for lack of trying, but like people didn't want to take your money because you're not relatively well known. Now you have about $6.5 million left in the bank. Uh, it's Q4. You probably should do another call. But if you do another call, like maybe 20% of your fund LPs defaults. You can check their wallets on, on chain. They don't have that much money anymore, right? If they default, does, if 20% defaults, you have to take 1.6 million imagine fees next year. That's a 400K loss for your ability to operate in 2023. Maybe you don't call the money. Maybe you go into 2023 saying, hey, I have a $100 million fund. I have the willingness to deploy. But in reality, you only have like $4 million to deploy because you're taking your $2 million in the magic fees again. So you're at $4.5 million and you're not really going to call capital for another year, right? And then it feels like you have dry capital because in theory, you have some, let's just say a 50-50 ratio. You have something like 40 $48.5 million left to deploy. But in reality, you might only have two, right? There are some of those dynamics that are part of the contagion of the FTX stuff that we haven't fully flushed out. And so that, especially in crypto, may be indicative of this. Also, I'm not confident in the... Like, there are people who I'm like, wow, this person understands venture and like cares about venture. So like Phil's colleague, Jackson Vaughn, for example, like cares about his carry. <laughs> like he cares about not the like day-to-day comp of management fees. He cares about returning the fund and thus making money that way. I'd imagine Phil, you and Josh and everyone else are in the same boat in that way. There are a lot of people who don't care about carry. And I think those people are the ones, and a lot of them are in crypto because they think of it as this like interesting management fee structure. Not to get too pedantic on this beyond the, my my usual pedantic self, uh, but like I would imagine, especially in crypto, we're going to see a lot of talking around. Hey, you know, we're just not we're being very careful on deployment. When in reality, they probably can't deploy if they mm-hmm. care about their management fees because they're going to see a default rate. It's going to reduce their management fee, and they care about that probably too much. Um, as you know, you know, Nico, I care a lot about carry. Like carry is really important because like. You, if you're good enough to be, oftentimes if you're good enough to be a venture capitalist, you're probably you should be a good enough operator to go be an executive somewhere. And so, like, you have to make up the EV loss of guaranteed, <laughs> like, director compensation at a fan mm-hmm. company in order to be make it worthwhile to do this, right? And so, 
To your initial question about, is there a lot of dry powder? The answer is yes, theoretically. In practice, it may not be there. And more importantly, uh, no one wants to be the person who deployed bad money after bad. Mm. Or good money after bad, rather. So I would imagine we're going to see a higher rate of thought around the, the future investments and what they, what they achieve. Yeah. It'll be really interesting too, because I feel like so many rounds last year, especially in the Web3 space, got jacked up just purely on competition where people wanted to win the deal. And they're like, oh, they're giving you five, we'll give you seven and a half. Somebody else comes in on top, <laughs> gives you eight, then you get nine, all of a sudden you raise 12 million on your seed round. Um, and that's because everyone wanted access. And I think that drove a lot of a lot of rapid deployment from certain groups. And um, that's definitely not the case today. And so I think that's another reason that people might slow down a little bit outside of what Seb was mentioning around people maybe just don't have <laughs> as much capital as they, they as it seems. Um, but it's just like I, a totally different world this year. Phil, I love, I love that statement, by the way, because it talks a bit about, I'm curious if there are people on the side who have the ability to do valuations, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you're used to a world where you're just auctioning and bidding, and if you like someone, you just bid until you can't bid, like, are you trained in the art of evaluating an opportunity? Are you mm-hmm. trained in the art of like creating a valuation from scratch? Right. Like, one of the things I push for constantly, um, both internally and externally, is like, hey, like, you should come up with your own valuation. Like, you mm-hmm. should have an opinion. And that way you can say no when your opinion is out of step with someone else's. Right. Yeah. And, I think that's like a really reasonable way to go about the world and, and doing that analysis and, and trying to understand what it looks like. Um, the other red flag, Nico, just so you know, is I've seen a lot of crypto VC Twitter um, talk about stable diffusion the last couple of weeks. Mm. Um, they clearly weren't experts in crypto and they're clearly not experts in AI. And so a lot of that powder might be deployed into random AI implementations that they don't understand, similar to how they deployed it into random crypto implementations they didn't understand. Soon, uh, AI bull market. It's going to be interesting. By the way, um, Seb, thank you for that. You know, uh, like quick five minute primer on VC dynamics because I think uh, that's that that story gave some some good examples about dynamics there, and uh, it's, uh, it's I think really helpful for a lot of people. It's a fun um, world. It's a, it's it's funny because like VCs are their own business, right? Like just like mm-hmm. startups, and so if you like the dynamics that I I run into on the on on like year end long term planning are very different for startups than they are for venture, for example. It's funny how as a VC, especially many of these crypto VCs, they act as in as the super experienced people, but like their own startup is younger than the startups that they're investing in. Um, often, um, yeah. and yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Good. All right, this this was a really good discussion. I feel like um, uh, it it feels like a good moment to to call this an episode. So Seb and Phil, thanks for joining me. Seb, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Seb Park, and also you can just shoot me an email. Honestly, just me at sebastianpark.com. Boom. All right, fantastic. Um, if you haven't already and you enjoyed this, join us in the fog now. Future of Gaming Discord. Also, we did a community call a few days ago and that's going live. Well, that is live when you're listening to this. So uh, if you missed that, listen to it and, uh, and join us because we're making that a weekly thing. The magic of time and editing. Exactly, exactly. Fantastic. All right. Thank you, everyone. And uh, speak to you next time.